If you would now please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. As we think about this passage, I want to begin um, with a question. Do you have anybody in your life right now who has rejected Jesus? Maybe repeatedly they have said no to Jesus. Someone who's heard the gospel over and over again, but they're dug in in unbelief. Maybe they're simply unconvinced. Maybe it's more than that. They're just not willing to believe. Maybe a family member for you or someone you've been sharing the gospel with for years, a neighbor, co-worker, a classmate, or maybe that person this morning is you. You're here, but you've not yet responded to Jesus' invitation to repent of your sins and to find eternal life and forgiveness in Him. What should we do when we encounter people that we would love for them to receive Jesus, but they won't? And how does Jesus feel about people who repeatedly reject Him? Those of you who are here and are not Christians, maybe you would like to know How does God feel about you in that? Those are the questions I want to try to address this morning as we come to Matthew 23. Last week, at the end of chapter 22, Lucas narrated for us this heated exchange between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jesus. This week, in chapter 23, We're essentially learning what Jesus thinks about these guys. What is his final word to them or his final word about them? It's right here in Matthew 23. His words are hard words, as we're going to see. Even harsh words, words that don't really ring well on modern ears, who have come to think about Jesus, loving Jesus, meek and mild, as incompatible with a Jesus who would have hard or harsh words for those who reject him. But we need to remember before we dive into chapter 23 that what we find at the end of chapter 22 is not the first opposition that has been launched against Jesus. This isn't the first time the religious leaders have rejected him. It began all the way back in chapter 3. I know that's been some months ago now. Before Jesus even began his ministry... The Pharisees and the Sadducees had rejected him. How is that possible? 
Well, remember John the Baptist? He came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He came pointing people to Jesus. He came calling them to repent. How did they respond to John and the Jesus he was pointing to? They said, we don't need your Jesus. We are perfectly fine in our own religious heritage as children of Abraham. Then Jesus shows up in chapter 4 and too is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, trying to woo people, the crowds, yes, his disciples, yes, but even the religious leaders seeking to woo them. Then when they reject him, he proceeds to warn them, but they won't listen to him. the end of chapter 22, they try to trap him. Not only that, they're trying to turn others against him. So they ask him three trick questions. But Jesus answers all of them in ways that amaze people. But the real amazing thing that happens at the end of chapter 22, just to remind you, is that Jesus turns to them and asks them a question. The most important question that you will ever give an answer to. What do you think of the Christ? That's the question. What do you think of the Christ? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees in particular, who were also scribes, had placed themselves in the seat of Moses, expert in all of the Old Testament. So they should have been able to see that the things that Jesus was saying, the things that Jesus was doing, were the very things that the Old Testament had spoken about the coming Messiah. But in their pride, they were unwilling to see it. They were unwilling to hear what Jesus had to say to them. So, what does Jesus say about them? After three years of repeated rejection, what are his final words? That's what we find in Matthew 23. But these words, I think, are also teaching us as his disciples how we should respond when those that we care about or those around us refuse to repent and repeatedly reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. The passage is divided into three very unequal parts. The first, you can see this on my title, is a warning. It's in verses 1 to 12. The second is a list of seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees, verses 13 to 36. And then finally, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in verses 37 to 39. These will teach us three ways to respond to those who repeatedly reject Jesus. Let's begin with the warning in verses 1 to 12. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do whatever 
they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. And greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you, you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So just to reboot The question for this morning, what do we do, how do we respond when people repeatedly refuse to receive Jesus? Jesus tells us in this warning, quite simply, don't follow them. Don't follow them. People like that are not the people that you should be following. Now, I think you would be saying to yourself right now, well, we don't follow people like that. But maybe when we get to the end, you'll see that sometimes, in fact, we do. Before Jesus directly addresses or speaks about the scribes and the Pharisees, he wants to address the crowds and the disciples. Again, keep the context in your mind's eye. The crowds that are following him into Jerusalem, his disciples who are with him, they've just witnessed the showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity to warn them to not follow people like that. He's explicit in his warning. But he's also doing something implicitly. Don't follow them, he's saying, But implicitly, he's saying, follow me. There are two reasons to not follow the scribes and the Pharisees. The first, as Doug O'Donnell says, is because they have big mouths. They preach, but they don't practice. They have a lot of words, but not a lot of works to support those words. What they are doing is they are doing a lot of teaching. Some of that teaching is from the Bible, the laws, the commands in the Bible. But some of the teaching was actually from their own man-made traditions. And they're taking that teaching like shovels and they're piling it on the people that they are teaching, weighing them down with burdens of laws and tradition. But they don't want to help them carry the load that they are putting on them. They won't even lift one finger. They want to keep those guys down so that they can keep themselves up. What a contrast to Jesus who says in chapter 11, come to me all of you who are weighed down by heavy burdens 
and I will give you rest. For my yoke, it is easy, and my burden, it is light. But not the scribes and the Pharisees. They're piling it on, but not lifting a finger to help. They've got big mouths. Second, they've got big heads. These religious people are doing religious stuff, we're told in verse 5, to be seen by others. What they want is they're saying, look at me. See the way I look, the way I dress, the things that I'm doing. Look at me and then go ahead and talk about me too. Tell me how great I am. When you see me at school, when you see me at work, when you see me downtown at the store, greet me with really high-sounding greetings. Call me great one. Call me rabbi. Call me father. Call me most reverend. Jesus says to his disciples, you don't treat people like that. You don't act like that. If you want to know who your teacher is, I'm the teacher. If you want to know who your father is, God is the father. That is not to say that we can't call people teacher. We can't call people father. It's to say that we are not supposed to try to get people to look at us so that they will talk about us in these exalted ways. Who is the great one? Jesus himself is the great one. And what did he do? He lowered himself to lift up the lowly. We shouldn't follow those who exalt themselves and put others down, but the one who humbled himself to bring others up. But we also need to be warned. When we exalt ourselves, so this doesn't just apply to the scribes and the Pharisees, but to us, when we exalt ourselves, we will be brought down by God. But when we humble ourselves, we will be raised up by God, just like Jesus was. Some of you have been following the podcast, The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill. But even if you've not been following that podcast, what I'm about to say is going to make perfect sense to you. What that podcast has taught us is that leaders in the evangelical church, not just in some other denomination, not just in some other time, but when leaders in the evangelical church exalt themselves, they end up hurting other people. And God will eventually bring them down. But that's not the main thing that podcast has taught those of you who have listened to it, is it? It's taught you something that is a little bit closer to home. Why do celebrity preachers and rock star 
worship leaders exist because we want them to exist. We want those powerful, talented, good-looking people to be leading the charge, don't we? Those are the world's values. Those are not the values of the kingdom of heaven. And we are being warned that those who exalt themselves will be brought down. But we are also being warned to not go after people like that. And to not be singing their praises. But to be singing the praises of the one who humbled himself. And then to follow leaders who do the same. That's the first way we are to respond to those who exalt themselves and reject Jesus. The next section shows us just how low God will bring those who exalt themselves and reject Jesus. Verses 13 to 37, we are introduced to seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, what I want to say at first is what these things aren't. These are not Jesus getting, having an emotional reaction because his feelings were hurt by the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is not being vindictive. Jesus is not being hateful. So if that's what he's not doing, what is he doing? He's being judicial. Judicial. It is as if he were a lawyer who is making his case before the judge. Making the case before the judge, before the sentencing takes place for those who are on trial. He lists seven reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees deserve God's just and final judgment. They teach us a second way that we should respond when we encounter people who refuse to receive Jesus. We need to know that God's just judgment is coming on them. So we need to be warned to not follow them, but then we also need to know a sobering truth that God's just judgment is coming on them. Now I'm not going to comment on all seven of the woes, and one of the reasons for that is I want to see want you to see the way they flow. I think the first six come in three groups of two. And then the last one is this emphatic punch in Jesus' remarks before the sentencing takes place. So I'm going to give us four reasons why God's judgment is just whenever people repeatedly refuse to receive Jesus. The first comes in the first two woes. And they teach us this. I want to tell you this before I read these verses. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but it's simple. Children of hell keep others out of heaven. Children of hell keep others out of heaven. Let's look at this first set of woes in verses 13 to 15. This is what it says. But woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So he ends there, verse 15, some pretty strong language, hard, harsh, children of hell is what he calls them. Why? Because they have refused the king from heaven. How else will they enter the kingdom of heaven if they will not receive the king from heaven? So they are children of hell, but it's not enough for them to make a personal decision to reject Jesus. They want the crowds around them to also reject Jesus. What do the religious leaders do whenever Jesus is teaching and the crowds are marveled or he's working miracles and the crowds are astounded? What do they do at every turn? They try to discredit him. They try to undermine him so that others won't follow them. They are children of hell who are really trying to keep others out of heaven. And what does Jesus say he will do to those who cause these little ones to stumble? That's his first piece of evidence against them. The second comes in the third and fourth woes. These blind guides are not only leading their proselytes astray, they're converts astray. These blind guides are so blind that they can't see the heart of what God's Word is about. This comes out in verses 16 to 24. Look at them with me. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold, or the gold that, what is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes a gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat, swallowing a camel. The scribes and the Pharisees, as I've already said, were experts in the Bible. They knew it backward and they knew it forward. The basic rebuke here is they have missed the main thing that it is about. They've missed the main one that it's about, Jesus. But they've also missed what it is calling them to. 
Remember what we learned last week from Jesus' teaching. We can summarize all of the law and the prophets in two commands. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The scribes and the Pharisees are following all kinds of commands, some of them in God's Word that they should follow. Some of them traditions taught by men, like tithing mint and dill. Nevertheless, of all of the commands that they are following, they have missed the weightier commands. Commands like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see, if they had applied, if they had obeyed showing justice and showing mercy, what would have they been doing? Loving others as themselves. But what are they doing to others? Piling loads on them that they're unwilling to help them with. Devouring widows' houses. If they would have shown faithfulness, or faith could be another way to translate that, they would have been showing their love for God, but they don't love God. Who do they love? They love themselves. It's so clear in their actions that reveals what's going on with them. They've missed the heart of the matter. That's Jesus' second evidence against them. But why? Why are they blind to the heart of God's Word? This comes out in the third set of woes. It's because they have bad hearts. Or better yet, dead hearts. They miss the heart of the matter because they don't understand that it's all a matter of the heart. Look at what Jesus says in verses 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They don't see the heart of the matter because it's a matter of the heart and their hearts are hard. Their hearts are dead. The Sermon on the Mount runs parallel. How did the Sermon on the Mount start? With blessings. How does this passage start? With woes. The Sermon on the Mount taught us a very important lesson. Even a summary statement could be, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? It is an external righteousness only. It is not an internal righteousness that comes from hearts that have been born again by the Spirit of God and changed. These men are 
heartless, hypocritical, showing only external religious righteousness. And that is on display in these two woes. They clean the outside of the cup, but the inside's filthy. It's a parable about their heart. They whitewash the tombs. This is literally something they did at Passover. They would whitewash the tombs so as pilgrims come for the Passover, they wouldn't inadvertently step on a grave and so pollute themselves from worship. Jesus is saying, you're like that. You do all of these things. It's like whitewash. You even wear these fancy clothes and long phylacteries so everybody can see you. But the fact of the matter is, is if anybody gets near to you, they're going to get polluted because you are full of death. Your heart is hard. Your heart is dead. And all of this, blind eyes to God's Word, dead hearts, it keeps them from the most important thing, seeing Jesus. It keeps them from hearing the gospel. It keeps them from repenting and from believing. And so this is really the heart of the matter. And this is where Jesus lands the plane in the final judicial sentence that he brings. In verses 29 to 36, in this final woe, we see that Jesus sees these men as sons of Satan because they will not respond to the gospel. Let's look at these verses together. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you the prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that you may come all so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. Jesus' main accusation here, there's so much I could say, but I want you to get the main thing. His main accusation is that they are not responding to the gospel. They are like their forefathers who didn't respond to the message of the prophets. The prophets came calling them to repent of their sins and look forward to God's future promises, but they refused. 
They thought they were good to go. And then when the heat got turned up, what did they do with those prophets? They killed them. The scribes and the Pharisees want to distance themselves from that heritage. They're not like that. They're taking care of the graves of these prophets, showing honor to them. They're not like their forefathers. But Jesus wants to make it very clear they're just like them. Just like them. How do we know? When the last prophet came, his name was John the Baptist, by the way. The last great prophet of the Old Covenant came. What did they do with him when he called them to repent and to flee the coming wrath of God? When he warned them, they rejected him. What did they do when Jesus gave the same message? They rejected him. And what will they do with him just a few days from now? They will hand him over to be crucified. They have killed the prophets, their forefathers. Now they plot to kill Jesus. They are sons of their forefathers, but more emphatically, they are sons of Satan. Why do I say that? A son does what his fathers do. So they are doing like their forefathers in rejecting the prophetic word, rejecting the promised Messiah, but they are also like their father Satan, a liar and a murderer. And so in verse 33, it is no surprise that Jesus then calls them serpents. What's the sentence? What's the final declaration for these scribes and Pharisees? Children of hell who keep others from heaven. Blind guides who can't see the heart of God's Word. Whitewashed tombs whose hearts are hard and dead. Sons of Satan who will not respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 33, he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This seems so harsh to us. Hard words. But let me again simply set them in context. Remember, this rejection in chapter 22 of Jesus is not the first time. This has been going on for three years now. This has been going on for thousands of years as part of Jesus' argument. People refusing to repent. He tried to woo them. He tried to warn them. Only now does he bring down the woes. But there's even more. In verse 34, Jesus seems to be predicting that after his death and resurrection, as the apostles would go and share the gospel on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection with these same scribes and Pharisees who would still be alive after that. That as they shared that message with them, would they then repent and believe? 
Most of them did not. And in fact, they killed the messengers. How many of the apostles were martyred? Not just by Romans. I mean, Stephen was stoned for preaching the good news to these same people. The point we need to get is not the harsh words of Jesus. The point we need to get is the great patience of our God who repeatedly seeks to woo us to warn us. And only after that, after repeated rejection, does Jesus pronounce woes that land in final judgment. This is so important for us to grasp. God has extended the kingdom of heaven to each and every one of us in this room. He has shown His love for us He has sent His Son to die for our sins and now calls us to repent of our sins and to receive His mercy. But if we won't, if we are unwilling, there is nothing left for us than the judgment of God. One day, our time will be up. It will be too late. But that time hadn't come. Today, you can respond in repentance. You've heard the word. You can receive Jesus today as your Savior. And if you are here, and I know there are some of you here who have yet to receive Him, to come to His invitation that says, come to Me, you who are weary and loaded down with sin, and I will give you rest for your souls. If you have not responded to that invitation, may I encourage you to do so today. Believe upon Him who came from heaven to save you. But what if you're here today and you've already received Jesus? There's still a question before us. I haven't put a bow on it yet. What do you do when you encounter people that refuse to receive Jesus, who continue to not repent of their sins. What should you do? We've learned two things. Be warned. Don't follow them. Secondly, you need to know that judgment will eventually come on them. But there's a third thing we haven't talked about. And it is this. We need to weep for them. When people refuse to repent, we have just learned an important truth. They are under God's wrath. How does that make you feel? Make you happy? Maybe you don't like those people. 
They're getting what's coming from them. I sure hope that's not how you feel. We should not rejoice when people reject Jesus and we learn that judgment is coming. We should lament. That's what Jesus did. Look at verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, You will not see me come again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like Jeremiah the prophet, the weeping prophet. What does Jesus do? Is he standing in Jerusalem and sees all of its leaders rejecting him? He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He is warned. He has issued woes. But he also weeps. And why does he weep? Because it's not what he wanted. What he wanted was to gather them. As a hen gathers her brood. He wanted them to come to him so that he could give them rest. For their souls. He wanted them to repent and to receive him, but they were unwilling. And so he tells them what that will mean for them in harsh and sobering words that they will be sentenced to hell. But getting that off his chest does not make him feel good, it drives him to tears. We live in a day where most preachers are cowards. They won't say what God's Word says. They won't preach hell. But we live in a day too where many people who are preaching hell are doing so out of self-righteous anger. We need to preach hell because Jesus does. But when we do, we need to do it like he does. With tears in our eyes. What a person does with Jesus is not simply some accessory to your life, some personal lifestyle decision that you make. What a person does with Jesus is a matter of heaven and hell and that reality should move your heart. When somebody responds by receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior, you should slaughter the fattened calf and celebrate for this lost one has come home. But when someone refuses to receive Jesus as their Savior, 
you should weep in dust and ashes, remembering that you yourself don't deserve one iota of the blessings that we have in Christ. They are all grace. They are all mercy. What to do when people reject Jesus repeatedly? Don't follow them. No woes are coming on them. But by all means, weep for them. Let us pray. Father, I pray that any here who have not yet responded in faith and repentance to Jesus and are wondering what you think about them, that you would help them to see your heart is so clear in Christ. A gentle and lowly heart. And that they would come to Him. For those of us who have come, I pray You would give us courage to preach the whole gospel, not just the easy parts, but that we would do so with hearts like yours. In Christ's name we pray.